Now, because this was a last-minute insertion uh, for this evening, you're not going to have the uh, fill-ins on the screens. And so as a result, you need to listen carefully, follow closely, so that you can have these uh, to put on your study guide as we move through. I'll do my best as we come to one to make, make it clear that this is where you'll write. Sometimes I, I get ahead of myself and I don't get to that point. But I'll do my best to, uh, uh, to point those out as we come to them. If for some reason I've skipped one, then when we get to the conclusion of it, if you'll just raise your hand up, then I'll walk back through them uh, and let you know what those are, okay? This evening we're going to be talking about a guy named Jarius, and I want so much for you to feel his pain this evening. I really do. I want you to be in his mind. I want you to understand the agony and the suffering that was upon him, because if you can get that, and you can understand what he walked through, you can see it for yourself as we move through this study, then when we get to the end and the application, it's going to be so much easier. I mean, it's just going to simplify everything if you can feel what's going on in his life and see the steps that were taken through the course of his life, okay? So hang in here with me and get, get involved in this character as much as you possibly can. So we're looking at Mark chapter 5. We're going to read to begin verses 21 through 24. We'll have a pause here. It won't be a dramatic pause, but it will be a purposeful pause that we'll look at a couple of things that are taking place in the meantime, and then we'll pick the story back up in verse 35. We'll read on down through 42. Okay, so if you've got your study guide, take a look at it. The verse is at the top of the page. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24 says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, and, and here it is, here's the emotion. My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Okay, now here's the pause, a purposeful pause, because we need to understand what's taking place before we pick the story back up. Okay, so Jarius comes to him, and, and he just lays it on the line, my little girl's about to die. I need you. I desperately need you to come with me to my house to heal my daughter. Okay, now you can feel the pain this guy's in. We're going to see more about that as we move a little further into the study. But this guy is hurting. He is in deep pain, deep agony. And Jesus agrees, and they set out to go to his house. But something takes place that prevents them from getting there as quickly as everyone else would have liked to have seen them get there. 
There's a great crowd around Jesus. And the Bible says that they're pressing up against him to the point that probably with every step, you know, people were rubbing shoulders with him, bumping into the back, and legs were hitting each other as they took steps. The crowd was so huge and so large, they were pressing in on Jesus, and he could probably barely move without bumping into someone. And in the process of this time, something happens. There's someone comes up behind him and touches him. And Jesus knows immediately that this is more than simply someone in the crowd bumping up against him because the crowd is so large. And Jesus turns around to see who it is. And he begins to ask, who touched me? Who touched me? The disciples probably saw the agony on the dad's face. And they understood, Jesus, we've got to get to this house. We don't have time to be standing here. I mean, look at this huge crowd. They said, with all these people pressing up against you, how could you ask who touched me? I mean, any one of these people could have touched you, and it wouldn't be unnatural. It wouldn't be uncommon because of the crowd so desperately pushing towards you. And why are you stopping? Why are you wasting time? I can imagine the disciples' thoughts. Jesus, don't you understand the agony that this dad is in? Don't you see the pain on his face? We've got to get to his house. And Jesus as if he was unconcerned. He said, no, someone touched me because I felt healing powers go out of me. Finally, the woman who had been touched came and she understood that she had been found out. And she said, she said you know what? I, I knew that if I could just touch you, I would be healed. She had been sick for a very long time. And she touched Jesus and she was healed from that moment. She knew it. The, the agony she was in was gone. And Jesus said, go your way, faith has healed you. And about that time, the most tragic news that a parent could ever hear came. Notice if you will now, verse 35. While he was still speaking... Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Oh, can you imagine? His heart must have fallen. We don't really know what took place. We don't really know if he just fell apart there in front of Jesus. We don't know if he fell to the ground in agony, screaming, crying, like probably any of the rest of us would have done. But what we do know is that there was at least pain on his face. That Jesus saw what was in his heart. Because the next verse, verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw the tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, 
Why make this commotion and weep? In fact, here's where the title of this study comes from. Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. In other words, Jesus was saying, why are you making such a fuss? Don't make such a fuss because I'm here and I'm still at work. Don't make such a fuss. Verse 40, and they ridiculed him. He said, the child is not dead, she's sleeping. And the crowd that once was weeping and wailing all of a sudden has changed drastically so that now they are ridiculing Jesus. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and he entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Well, let's stop here. Okay, now you can imagine the pain that this dad is in. The hurt, the anguish that's going on. And you can see this not only in the dad, but you also see this as we continue the story in those who were gathered at the house. They were crying, they were wailing. You know, it's so hard to go to a funeral where someone my age or a little older has died because you just think he's so young. <laughs> I'm not really saying I'm that young, but comparatively when we think about people dying, this would be a younger age. When you go to a funeral of a child, I tell you, it is, it is a miserable, miserable thing to face. It is so hard. And here these people were doing what anyone would do. They were feeling the pain of the family. And they were hurting with the family. They were crying with the family. But interestingly enough, this dad shows us some pretty incredible things. I, I honestly, as I was reading through this, and I, had, I didn't have as much time to prepare this as I wanted or as I would have liked to have had, but just the little bit of time that I studied through this, I began to understand what a remarkable person this dad was. And I want to show you three things about him. Number one, he went with confidence. He went to Jesus with confidence. He went to Jesus with confidence. Your first feeling, he went to Jesus with confidence or went confidently. Now, I think that is the case, and I believe that to be true because of what was going on in his life. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So just hang with me as we get to that point. But the first thing we see is that when he came to Jesus, he came to him broken. Letter A on your study guide. He came to Jesus broken. Now we don't really have to explain this. We don't really have to talk about this. But certainly it's the case. He was a broken person. And we think that he was broken because of the fact that he came to Jesus. I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that he hadn't already done everything he could do to save his daughter's life. 
I believe that if you talk to him, he would say, I've spent every penny I thought was, was possible to spend to bring about some sort of relief for her, and yet nothing has solved the problem. I have brought everyone in that I thought could possibly help. I brought doctors, I brought nurses in, and no one has been able to touch what's going on. And so I believe that he's done everything he can, and now, almost as if a last resort, maybe it's just the case that now Jesus is in the area where he is. I don't really know for sure. We know that Jesus has crossed to the other side of the water, so maybe now he's close enough for the dad to get to him. The dad hears about it, and instantly he heads out to find Jesus. And when he gets there, we see that he is a broken person. And I, I think that we can understand this even more because of, of the fact that he is there. You see, him even being there with Jesus put his reputation and his position in great jeopardy. His reputation and his position was in jeopardy because of the fact, or were in jeopardy because of the fact that, that he was a religious leader. It tells us in verse 22, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came. You know that the religious leaders despised Jesus. They didn't like him. And here was one of their own, now coming to Jesus as if to say, I need you, Jesus. We need you. And so this religious leader was validating the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. He was one sent from God. And I can imagine that the other religious leaders, had they known about it, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, had they known about it, would have looked unkindly upon him for validating the person of Jesus Christ. And he would have jeopardized his reputation and he would have jeopardized his position. And yet what was in greater jeopardy and meant more to him was his daughter's life. His daughter was about to die. So therefore, the reputation, the position meant absolutely nothing to him. doesn't matter. Jesus can help my daughter, and I'm going to see Jesus. He came to him as a broken person. Let her be, not only did he come to him broken, but he came bowing before him. He came bowing before Jesus. There was a recognition that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, maybe he fully understand, understood that Jesus was the Son of God. But more likely, at least from my little bit of research, more likely is that he simply got it that Jesus was from God. No one else could do the things that Jesus had done except he'd come from God. Nicodemus had said the same thing. I think it was Nicodemus. And so he recognized who he was, and as a result, he bowed down before him, and he began worshiping him. I mean, that was a sign of worship. Now, this in itself would have also put him in great jeopardy in his position, his authority. Because he was admitting that there was something very important and special about Jesus. It wouldn't have been in the mind or the heart of one of the religious leaders of the day and time to fall down before anyone as if to say, you're more important than I am. They would have frowned upon that because they thought themselves to be it. 
And yet he recognized his deep need of Jesus. And he recognized that he had to have him. Therefore, let her see, he also came to him begging. He came begging. It is verse 23, it says, and begged him earnestly. Didn't come and say, hey, if you got a chance, would you mind stopping by my house? No, what was going on was too vital. It was too important. And he begged him earnestly. Please stop what you're doing and come to my house. My little daughter is about to die. The second thing we see about this guy that I think is really unique and really important. Number one, he went confidently. But number two, he waited confidently. Now throughout the course of this study, you're going to see that there were... There, were, there was fear, there was probably anxiety, there was somewhat of a doubt, a, a, somewhat of an of, of a uncertainty. And yet I want you to know that he still had an incredible faith. He was also human, and therefore his humanity weighed in upon his faith and caused him to, to maybe, maybe have some trouble with this. But yet, when you read through this passage and you examine this guy named Jairus, what you see was that he was an incredible man of faith. Letter A, we see that because delay came, and yet he waited. Delay came. The delay was the woman in the crowd. Jesus was on his way. He finally had, okay, we're on our way. We can get there in time. And all we have to do is get there before she dies. And if we get there, Jesus will touch her and Jesus will heal her. And all of a sudden, the traffic stops and Jesus turns to say, who touched me? And we don't know how much time was spent there. We don't know how much of a delay went on. I, I can imagine that if I was in Jairus' shoes, I would have probably said, Jesus, don't worry about that. We've got to get to my house. Please, please, let's go. We've got to get to my house. My daughter, remember my daughter. She's almost dead. And we really don't know what all went on in his mind or in his actions. But what we see is despite the delay, he stood confidently there waiting on Jesus. Not that there wasn't doubt. Not that there wasn't fear. Not that there wasn't anxiety. I believe all of that was there. And I believe that's why the disciples spoke up and said, Jesus, why are you asking such a thing? We've got to be going. And yet, he waited. That was important. But I think this next part, letter B, is even bigger because of what it represents. Because not only did delay come, but then discouragement came. Letter B, discouragement came. I was trying to make these points go together a little better. So delay, discouragement, starting with the D. You'll find letter C starts with a D. Uh, discouragement is the word that came out of it, but I really think heartbreak 
agony. More than, more than just discouragement. Because what came, verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. We don't have to bother him anymore. Can you imagine? Would he have just thought, I had a chance. I had a chance to get Jesus there. And then the delay came. Now my daughter's dead. Hope's gone. Hope's gone. Maybe most of us would have picked up and just walked away at that point. Maybe we would have just left and said, okay, well, I've got to be with my family. Not Jarius. This guy's amazing. He waited confidently on Jesus, even though he had just gotten this incredibly discouraging news. And yes, there was fear on his face. Jesus turned to him and said, don't be afraid. This is horrible news. You can't get worse news than this as a parent. This is terrible. Don't be afraid. I'm still on my way. But not only was there delay and discouragement that came, but let her see there was disbelief that came. Disbelief. We see this in two different places in this story. First of all, we see it in verse 35 when they came and said, Your daughter is dead. Then they said this, Why trouble the teacher any further? Okay, there's no need to bother him now. She's dead. There's nothing we can do. Nothing he can do. We might as well go on home. Okay, disbelief. And those seeds of disbelief would have been planted into his mind. Maybe he began thinking, okay, maybe there is no hope. And yet despite that disbelief that was planted into his thoughts, we see that Jairus still waited confidently on Jesus. But then we see later on in the story an additional element of disbelief. When Jesus got to the house, he told them, hey guys... You don't need to be making all this fuss because really it's not as bad as you think it is. She's not dead, she's just asleep. Jarius would have been well served had the crowd began to cheer. Oh, thank you God, thank you God. She's going to be okay. And yet his friends who were there to comfort him now became a great distraction. Because now all of a sudden, instead of being the support, now they were actually pulling him the wrong way. There's no reason to believe that. We've already been in there. We've seen the child. We know that she's dead. You're not going to convince us with this phony religious act you put on that somehow everything's going to be okay. We know better than that. 
And Darius could have easily been, been swayed by the opinion of the people. He could have easily been drawn away from pursuing confidently after Jesus Christ. And yet, this amazing guy stands confidently with Jesus. One more thing I want you to see about him. Number three, he went confidently, he waited confidently. Number three, he watched confidently. He watched what was happening. He watched what Jesus was doing with the crowd who were belittling him. When he got into the room with the daughter, he watched confidently expecting and it was important because letter A, the command was given to him. The command, letter A, Jesus told him, do not be afraid. Now that was something that Jesus was comforting him with. Listen, you can still have confidence here. I see fear on your face and it's understandable, but you don't have to be afraid. You can still stand confidently beside me. Not only was a command given, but then also letter B, the condition was given. He said, do not be afraid, only believe. When Jesus was healing people, their faith was so important. In fact, when he was in his own hometown, it says that he did few miracles because their faith was so little. He needed this dad to have a strong faith through this situation. He needed him to be assured that Jesus Christ could do what he wanted him to do. That he could take care of his daughter. And because he responded so appropriately, so confidently to the command and the condition, then letter C, we see the consolation. The prize, if you will. Verses 40 through 42. Jesus told the people, there's no need to make this commotion. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Verse 40. And they ridiculed him. But he had put them all, when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him. In other words, Peter, James, and John. And entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is to say, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked. She was 12 years old. They were overcome with great amazement. As I thought about this, and I, I want to look at the way the notes have it, because I did a couple of changes Number four, if you would just put this, how it all came out. How it all came out. Letter A, I think the obvious thing is that the faith of this family grew. Now this dad went in with strong faith. But I think as as he went through this experience, as he watched God 
do amazing things, as he saw God overcome delay and discouragement and, and to overcome disbelief on the part of the people and still bring about an answer to the prayer. Can you imagine that his faith went from here way up to here? I mean, the faith grew. It's obvious it would. I think that's what happens when we go through difficulties. We may have faith in God, but as we watch God respond and we watch God work, then all of a sudden we grow, we mature. Our faith is expanded. But something else took place. Letter B, not only did the faith of the family grow, but those who came as unbelievers left glorifying God. Those who were there at the house as unbelievers, those who came to the scene to weep and wail with the family, began the process as unbelievers because they thought Jesus could not possibly help this child now. She was dead. And yet, what you find is that when they left, they left glorifying God. They had heard the child's voice. They had seen the child now moving around. So through this incredibly difficult situation, some very important things began to happen. Faith of the family grew. Those who came as unbelievers left glorifying God. And let her see this happened because a dad went, waited, and watched with confidence in Jesus. This dad went, waited, and watched with confidence in Jesus. Here's the conclusion. I think so many times when we go through hard stuff, when we're going through difficulties and problems, the natural human response is to turn and run. We may pray. And we may seek God, but yet, because it goes a little bit longer, there's interferences and the story isn't going exactly the way we wanted it to. Situations aren't turning out the way we hoped it would. There's all of these interferences, all of these problems. And, and as a result, we're, we're seeking God, but yet we're not really believing it. And it's as if God's sitting in heaven saying, why all the fuss? Do you not realize I've still got this? I'm still in control of what's happening. I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. And I'm not going to start now. And it may be that in the case of Jarius, things turned out really well. It may be in your case it didn't. And it's so easy in that situation to stop and say, well, God was not with me. God didn't hear my prayer. God didn't answer me.
That's tough. And yet what we're seeing is such a small little part of the picture. God's got this panoramic view of what's happening. He sees it all from the very beginning to the very end. And he knows exactly what's going to occur. He knows why what's happening will happen and what will be the result in the future. He sees every aspect of it. Our little part, although it seems huge, it's our whole life, is just a very little pixel in the picture. God is saying, if you will just trust me, don't be afraid, only believe. If you will just trust me, there may be heartache, there may be pain, there may be fear, there may be anxiety. But if you'll just trust me, this is going to turn out in a way that is always best for those who love me. Imagine if you can what God can do with our tragedy imagine beyond the scope of what is typical for us to think what God may be working to accomplish through our problems through our suffering God is so trustworthy and I realize standing on the outside of tragedy, looking in, talking to some who either here or watching the service live tonight may be embedded in deep tragedy, deep grief, deep sorrow, deep suffering. That it sounds so easy and things may be a whole lot harder when tragedy comes upon me to stand here and say that. And yet it doesn't change the fact that God can be trusted and that God knows what He's up to. And He wants us simply to submit to that. <coughs> Could we just take a moment and just spend this time with God, just you and God, and just say, God, I'm in something like that now or I know the possibilities are here that it could happen. Help me to trust you through it all.